It has been billed as the biggest boon to public health since tobacco taxes. How would a tax on sugared beverages impact our health and health care budget? Would the general public back this policy shift enough for politicians to think about putting it on the books? And if not, could we find a better way to discourage our insatiable taste for these tasty sugary drinks? You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host. Our guest is Dr. Kelly Brownell, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, where he is also a professor of epidemiology, public health, and psychology. Dr. Brownell, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, you recently wrote an article, and I was wondering if you could tell me what inspired you to write it and the timing of it. The article that you're referring to was a piece that I wrote with uh, Dr. Thomas Frieden, the outgoing health commissioner of New York City and the appointee by President Obama to head the CDC in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was a perspective piece on the possible use of taxes on sugared beverages as a way to improve public health and to raise revenue. The idea goes back many years. In fact, it was about 15 years ago that I first proposed the idea, and it was in a piece in the New York Times at that point, and was really blistered by the conservative folks who didn't like the idea of the soda tax. Mm-hmm. And uh, But now the, now the door, I think, seems open for this, because the prevalence of obesity, the need to control health care costs, and the need for states to raise revenue because of the dire economy, I think, all creates a set of conditions where tax on sugar beverages might finally be possible. Yeah, I think the last 15 years, the sugar has fueled the fire and the obesity epidemic, and it's kind of like we're in a perfect storm right now. That's certainly what the research would suggest. The People say, why pick on soda or why pick on sugared beverages? That's certainly what the industry says. And the answer to that is pretty simple. The science on it is the strongest. Other things like fast food and snack foods and other categories of foods have been studied, but not as much as sugared beverages, and the science is quite robust. So throw out some facts of the science uh, in terms of, you know, how many calories will lead to how many pounds in a year, and just share a little of the science with us. Well, we published a review paper on this several years ago uh, in the American Journal of Public Health, and it was a meta-analysis of all the research that had been done on sugared beverages and its impact on health. And several things were pretty striking from that review. Uh, first of all, the link between sugar beverage consumption and obesity is quite clear in both children and adults. You know, it makes common sense, of course, but it has been shown by the science. There are also links with diabetes. And then a study that came out just recently found links with heart disease as well, after controlling for a number of factors. The stronger the design of the study, the more likely it was to show that effect. For the most part, studies Uh, contrary to what I just mentioned, tended to be funded by the beverage industry or the sugar industry. And the most compelling studies of all are the intervention studies where you go in and take a control group and then have another group where they specifically reduce sugared beverage intake, and those people tend to lose weight. So the science on it is pretty clear and just seems like it's a good idea to move ahead. I know that Pepsi recently came out with their old formula using uh, sugar and not high fructose corn syrup, and they're experimenting with that to see how that goes over with the public. That'll be interesting to see. But again, it's really, uh, it's sugar. It seems to be the case. And, you know, in some ways it's amusing. In some cases it's sad to 
see the sugar people and the high fructose corn people slugging it out to see who can win out there in the court of public opinion. But well, which industry has the the bigger guns? Is it the high fructose corn syrup industry or is it the sugar? You know, who has the best lobby? Well, they're both pretty powerful. The high fructose corn people is the Corn Refiners Association. That that's the body that represents them. And of course, so much of uh, a lot of corn gets refined into high fructose corn syrup. So that's in the agribusiness companies that sell it are quite involved in that. The sugar people are a whole different set of industry players, but both are highly subject to what the soft drink industry decides to do. So if they use one versus the other, it makes a big difference for the industry. Uh, can we go back in time? Do you think any of this had to do with Earl Butts? Do you remember him? Sure does. It, it has a lot to do with him. Uh, he was Secretary of Agriculture in the Nixon administration, and for very good reason, they put into place a series of agriculture policies to help the American farmer, uh, and, and the farmers were really suffering, having trouble competing in the world market. And so without knowing the nutritional consequences, so it's hard to blame them for this, they started subsidizing corn and soybeans and other things as well, but mainly corn and soybeans. And so the world prices of those dropped, and the American farmers started producing massive amounts. And this has had a variety of consequences on world trade and even on things that you wouldn't expect, like the ability of indigenous farmers in places like Mexico and India to survive because we flooded the world market with low-cost corn and they simply can't compete. But the nutrition consequences are quite interesting. If you drive down the cost of corn, then anything that gets made with corn is artificially subsidized by government. So just take a fast food meal, for example. If government's helping subsidize corn, then that means in soybeans it's cheap to feed the cow. So your hamburger at a fast food restaurant is subsidized. You can sweeten the soft drink with high fructose corn syrup and the low-cost oil that gets used to fry the french fries is, is all implicated in this. Whereas if you buy a salad, there's almost no government subsidy at all. So some people say that government should stay out of our decisions to eat, but government's very much in those decisions now, but not in a very constructive way. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Brownell, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. He's also a professor of epidemiology, public health, and psychology, and we're talking about his proposed ban to tax sugared beverages. So let's talk a little bit about the proposed tax. Um, it's uh, proposed at one cent per ounce. What do you see that'll do uh, just in the state of New York alone? There are two aspects of this. One is what would it do in terms of soft drink consumption, and second, how much revenue would it raise? And in um, terms of soft drink consumption, the economists have worked out what's called the price elasticity of sugared beverage consumption. It's not perfect research yet, but from what we gather, it looks like there's about a one-to-one -one relationship, so that a 10% increase in cost, for example, would lead to about a 10% reduction in total population consumption. So it's a pretty pretty meaningful impact in terms of public health. And of course, a larger tax would produce even greater reductions. In terms of the revenue, um, there are various estimates on this, but in New York State, the estimate was that I believe $400 million would be raised every year with a tax that we talked about as penny per ounce. And that's just in New York State. You can imagine if you multiply that by all the other states, what the potential revenue for the nation would be. And that certainly couldn't fund all of health care, but it would start. It would be a good start. 
And if it were the money were used for programs to help prevent obesity and to improve nutrition, then it could go a long way. So where is the bill right now? Is it sitting somewhere? Has it been drafted? Is it in front of Congress? There are a number of proposals out there now, but at the moment, the taxes that we've discussed haven't been passed. It so happens that about 40 states now do have taxes on either soft drinks or snack foods, but they're very small, Mm -hmm. and they were put in just to raise revenue, not to affect consumption of the beverages. And uh, they were put in to be small so that consumers wouldn't be upset and the industry wouldn't be upset. But now larger taxes are being considered. So the governor of New York proposed an 18% sales tax on sugared beverages, but withdrew it under heavy political pressure from the soft drink industry. And he had some other political misfortunes that um, made it hard for him to move ahead with this. Uh, We've been contacted by a number of other states expressing interest in this. And the uh, even by some people in Washington. And then also there are different countries that are considering this. And Mexico appears to be the closest to doing the tax. So it's our guess that this will happen sooner or later. And then as the large revenue stream uh, proves attractive, other states will catch on and want to do it as well. Well, in your article, you you talk a little bit about tobacco taxes, and as a society, we're pretty used to that. They go up and up and up, and it seems that fewer people are smoking these days because of that, because they can't afford it. So would you say that you hope the same thing happens with the sugar tax? Yes, because the fact that only half the people smoke in the United States compared to a number of decades ago is a huge public health victory. And the amount of health care savings is enormous, not to mention the savings of lives and well-being of people. And people who study tobacco have worked out the contribution of various things. So it has to do with clean indoor air laws, people's concern about their health when they smoke, and a lot of things. But the single most important thing have been the tobacco taxes. And given that they work so effectively there, uh, why not do them with things like sugared beverages? Some people claim that it would be a regressive tax, that it would unfairly hurt poor people. And there's some that that's a reasonable argument that I think needs to be addressed. But people don't need uh, sugared beverages to live. They don't need them to survive. And so if people migrate from sugar beverages to non-sugared beverages, they'll be better off. The society will be better off. Healthcare costs should go down, and uh, there should be some revenue stream from it as well. You talk about uh, the effect on the poor, and so the lobbyists would say you are unfairly singling out the poor because they're the ones who are going to have to pay the most for this. And, you know, the reason that these products are so cheap is because they're, you know, they're nutrient poor and they're calorically dense. And if you go into any food store, you know, if you go in the middle of the store, you find everything that's cheap and bad for you. And if you go around the perimeter, you find everything that's good for you and a little more expensive. Are we going to affect them? And what's your spin on that? Well, there are a couple of things that happen to the poor, and especially to some ethnic groups, that are really very unfair. One is that the access to healthy food is worse in poor neighborhoods than it is for people who are better off. And so even if people are inclined to want to eat healthier foods, and many people are, they can't find them or they're unattractive because they don't have a big display or they're more expensive. That's a problem with social justice and food access. And then the other problem is that there's heavy marketing of some of these unhealthy foods to some of the ethnic groups. And the extent of it hasn't been completely documented in research, but what little exists so far does suggest some disproportionate marketing of some of these products to to certain ethnic groups. And so 
we believe that a tax in the absence of using the money for something that would specifically help the poor, help the poor, uh, is much less attractive than if you do put in an earmark for the money. That is, the money is designated to be used for a certain cost. So, mm-hmm. our proposal would be to take the revenue and use it to support health care for the uninsured, or to use it for nutrition and obesity-related prevention programs aimed at uh, the poor. And then the extent that there was any regressive nature of the tax, it would be offset by the use of the funds. I, I fully support your ideas, and I'd like to add another. Has anyone thought about, you know, not punishing the big business uh, and, you know, uh, going against capitalism and going towards the individual? And let's say we tax the individual who decides he wants to drink himself into a obese state and perhaps his insurance premium is higher based on his BMI. If he wants to smoke and drink and kill himself, he should pay more because he's costing the system more. That um, is an interesting proposal and certainly gets used already with things like tobacco. We have misgivings about that in the obesity area because something like smoking is pretty much under a person's personal control. I mean, except the fact that they get addicted when they're young and then have a very hard time getting over it. But but people have to eat, and people have different metabolic profiles. And so there are some people who don't eat an awful lot but still tend to gain weight. And there are other people that have genetic reasons for being overweight. And so you hate to penalize people for something that's not under their personal control. So I'm not saying all cases are like that. In fact, it's probably a minority of cases. But still you have to work that in. So we think that using financial incentives for the behavior, that is the act of buying these foods, or you could have a positive incentive, for example, incentives to join health clubs or to be physically active. We'd be all for those kind of things. So let's uh, look into your crystal ball. Let's go into the year 2010. What state do you foresee passing something like this? And uh, where do you see this going in the next, let's say, while we're still under the Obama uh, administration? It's a little hard to predict which states might be the first adopters, but judging from other food-related things like menu labeling and getting rid of trans fats in restaurant foods, uh, New York City was the first to do both of those, followed by uh, activity in California and some of the other New England states like Connecticut and Massachusetts. But I'm not sure that's the way the tax will go, but it might very well. But I expect the idea will kick in, and then My hope, uh, and I don't know that I have a crystal ball better than anybody else's, but my hope is that someday that these these sugar beverage taxes will be every bit a part of the landscape as the tobacco taxes are now. And my last question is, what did you have to drink with lunch today? (laughs) I had water to drink and tea today. All right, Dr. Brownell, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Dr. Kelly Brownell. Dr. Brownell is the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. He's also a professor of epidemiology, public health, and psychology. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thanks for listening. 